We are starting a new series this morning, and we're going to be talking this summer about theology. And for some of you, I know that your immediate reaction to the word theology uh, is not positive. You may think about people getting in arguments when you think about theology, angry discussions about subjects that ultimately don't matter, maybe what you think about when you think about theology. Uh, I ran across a story from 2004 when I was thinking about theology this week. It says a couple who got into a dispute over a theological point after watching The Passion of the Christ were arrested after the argument turned violent. Okay, here's what happened. They went to watch The Passion of the Christ, right, which is a movie about the uh, selfless sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And on the way home, they began to argue about the Trinity. And the argument gathered steam in the car, and it actually turned violent when they got home. They began to shove and push one another. This wife actually stabbed her husband on the hand with scissors. She was so angry about this theological argument. And there's a quote uh, from the wife. She says, it was the dumbest thing we've ever done. Uh, They called the police on one another. They were both arrested And uh, the sheriff who arrested them said, really, it was kind of a pitiful thing to go to a movie like that and fight about it. I think they missed the point. (laughs) You think? Like, I read that and I thought, absolutely, they missed the point, right? But for many of us, that's what we think of when we think about theology. I was at a theology conference about 15 years ago and actually saw two prominent theologians, men whom I respect, literally nearly come to blows in a discussion about the role of women in ministry and their fists were clenched and their faces were red and they were shouting at each other in a group of other distinguished theologians, right? If that's what we think of, though, when we think of theology, uh, we are, in fact, missing the point because ultimately theology is the study of God, that ought to drive us to worship rather than to anger. For others of you, you think about dusty libraries and large stacks of books that are irrelevant and professors who have not seen the sunlight in years writing papers with words like superlapsarianism and transubstantiation just to impress their friends arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I ran across a few quotes that express this angst about theology this week. Uh, This is an anonymous quote, but it captures the essence of many people's views about theology well. If all the theologians in the world were laid end to end, they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. Uh, Many of you, that's how you feel. Uh, Karl Barth, the great 20th century theologian, said this, The word became flesh And then through theologians, it became words again, right? The idea is that theologians have a knack for turning these great doctrines about God into arguments over words, all right? But in reality, that's not the purpose of theology. If that's what we think of when we think of theology, we are missing the point. And here's why, because there is nothing more significant, nothing more practical than learning about God. Because if our ideas about God are wrong, then our worship of God will be wrong. 
If our ideas about God are wrong, then in fact our gospel will be wrong. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, theology is practical, especially now. If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. When we proclaim the message of the gospel, that Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day and promises eternal life to all who will believe in him, that we are saved by grace through faith, uh, there is so much theology tacked into that seemingly simple presentation of the gospel, that without a proper understanding of God, our gospel itself will go astray. And the genesis of every non-Christian cult ultimately is a misunderstanding of theology, of who Jesus is. Because even in that simple statement of the gospel, we are affirming the deity and humanity of Christ, a beautiful theological concept that is often called hypostatic union, a big word for that concept that Jesus in one person is fully divine and fully human. We are affirming what's called substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in our place. We are affirming bodily resurrection. We are affirming certain things about the end times and eschatology. All of those come into play when we proclaim the gospel. All of those things come into play when we talk about God. All of them come into play when we sing songs, just like we sang of worship to God, and we say we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. That's a theological statement. And in the scripture, to worship the wrong God, there's a name for that. It's called idolatry. To worship a God that is at odds with what the scripture tells us is idolatry. And so the aim of theology is not so we can teach classes in a dusty library or classroom, but so that we can love and worship and proclaim God correctly. So as we begin this series, where we want to set our minds this morning is this. We must think about God accurately in order to worship Him correctly. We must think about God accurately in order to worship Him correctly. So this summer, we're going to be uh, looking at a number of theological topics, all the way from the Bible to what it says about mankind to what it says about the Trinity, a whole bunch of Ologies, right? Bibliology and soteriology and anthropology. But ultimately, what we are aiming toward is in order to worship God correctly, we want to think about Him accurately. And so this morning, I want to set the stage by talking for a bit about theology. I'm just going to introduce the topic and ask the question what is it when we say the word theology and why is it significant to us that we study it, that we learn about God? Through the scripture, that is the study of theology. I want to say this as we begin, whether you know it or not, you are a theologian. If you ever think about God, if you ever 
ponder the deep questions of life, like why do bad things happen to good people? Or where do we go when we die? Or what is God like? And how can God be uh, sovereign and yet also give mankind a measure of free will? If you ever think about those concepts, you already are a theologian. The only question is, will your theology accurately reflect the God of the scriptures? And so we want to look this morning at the subject of theology. And I'm going to present just a few concepts about theology that will drive everything we talk about this summer. The first one is this, that, uh, and this may seem obvious to you, but the subject of theology is God. The subject of theology is God. As you look at the definition of the word itself, it comes from two Greek words, right? The first Greek word is theos, which means God, All right? The second one is logos, which means word or instruction. If you think about John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That, that is logos, has the idea of uh, the, the speech of God or the instruction about God. So what is theology then? It is words or instruction about God. Uh, very simply, theology is the study of God. Now, why is that significant for us to set that principle right up front? Here's why. Because we want to know more about that which we love. All right, we want to know more about that which we love. All right, so if you are a car person, the odds are that you spend time studying about cars, right? You want to learn about the engine or the radiator or the tires and all of these aspects of a car, and it doesn't feel like uh, you are doing it to take a test. It feels like something you love to do, right? We also want to learn about that which is important to us. Uh, We tell our kids to learn about the alphabet because we suspect that they will use it, right? Uh, Most of you parents, I'm guessing, have never said to your kid, you know what? I don't use the letter D. I've never really used that. Don't mess with it, right? No, we recognize that they need to learn it because it matters, right? If you've ever fallen in love, you know that learning about your beloved is a delight, right? Uh, It did not feel like work when Shannon and I were dating to learn that she loves the country of France and everything about France. And so I began to learn about France and things that I could bring to our relationship to pretend like I had some knowledge to add about France, right? To learn about her favorite foods, to learn about her favorite activities, right? Those things didn't feel like work, There's a movie that came out a number of years ago that some of you may have seen, and it's called Big Fish. And uh, the main character of Big Fish is a man named Edward Bloom. And uh, Edward Bloom one day is at the circus, and he sees a young woman, and he falls in love with her at first sight. But he doesn't know her name, and she slips away before he can meet her. And so he goes to the ringmaster, and he says, I have to know who she is. I have to be able to meet her. The ringmaster says, she's way out of your league, pal. Don't even try. And he goes, please tell me. The ringmaster says, okay, if you work for me, then once a month I will pay you by telling you something about her. And Edward Bloom loved her so much, he said, deal, right? And he agrees to be paid in information about this woman because he loves her so much. You want to learn more about that which you love. That is the basis of theology. If we say, I love God, 
then we ought to want to know him and know who he is. Right? So the, the scripture will say, in fact, the fear of God and the love of God is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There is a school of thought that says theology somehow will draw you away from a passionate walk with God. The scripture would say just the opposite, that it is the fool who despises wisdom and instruction about God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Again, Proverbs chapter 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. If we want to be men and women of wisdom, if we want to be men and women who know God and love Him, uh, theology is an avenue through which we can understand and worship God. We want the songs that we sing to accurately reflect the God of the Scripture. Uh, We want our prayers to accurately reflect the God of the Scripture so we don't thank God the Father for dying on the cross. We want our gospel presentation to accurately reflect the truth of Jesus Christ because we love Him. Because worship of the wrong God in Scripture is called idolatry. And we yearn to be those who worship the one true God according to his word. So the subject of theology, first and foremost, is the God whom we love. And we learn about the God whom we love, of course, first and foremost, through his word. The source of theology, then, is scripture. The source of theology is scripture. In other words, we uh, want to approach theology understanding that although we can use other tools, although I can learn about theology from other people, or I can learn about theology from a pastor that I respect, or I can learn about theology from a Christian living book or even a movie. Ultimately, I want to submit all of my understanding about God to the Scripture because God has given His Word as the primary source for us to understand Him. Right? You would not write a dissertation on any subject in the world without going to primary Sources. If you were writing a dissertation, for example, on Native American culture, you would not suggest that the Disney movie Pocahontas ought to be your primary source. And yet often that sort of approach is what we take when we think about theology. Instead of going to the scriptures first, we go to our favorite preacher's podcast or we go to a movie or a novel series like Left Behind, which isn't evil, right? But it isn't scripture. It's entertainment. It's an interpretation of the Word of God, right? Or we go to some other book, right? But the source of theology, first and foremost, is the Word of God. So that when we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Right? First and foremost, we go to the Scripture. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, We can't just yank a passage right out of its context 
and apply it in any way we please. Just because we read it in the scripture doesn't mean we're interpreting it appropriately, right? So that is where the body of Christ comes in. That is where some of these other commentaries and books and sermons can help us. That is where the creeds of the church can help us to understand how has the scripture been interpreted through the years. But first and foremost, we go to God's word, right? So that uh, when a young person, a college student or a high school student often comes and says, what are you reading right now? What should I be reading about God? My first answer is, are you reading the Bible? Invest your time in God's Word, because that is the source of theology. I walked into our living room this past week and found my eight-year-old daughter on the sofa reading her new Bible, And as I walked in, I thought, well, that's great. She's reading the scripture. And I said, what are you reading, sweetie? And she said, I am reading Revelation. (laughs) And my first thought was, oh, no, help us, right? Not only will she not understand. I mean, this was honestly my first reaction is uh, there's all of this stuff about, you know, seal judgments and bowl judgments and fire raining from heaven and horsemen of the apocalypse, And I thought, not only will she not understand it, she is going to have nightmares as she reads through it. And sure enough, at breakfast the next morning, she said, Revelation is a little scary, right? I said, yes, it is. But I I held my tongue from saying to her what immediately popped to my mind, which was, uh, maybe you shouldn't read that yet, right? And here's why. Because I want her to learn that God has given his word for us to know him. And the only way to know God's word, even when it's hard, is to begin to practice reading it, right? So maybe I can help her understand it, right? But God forbid I would stop her from reading it. And for many of us, I think in the past, we have approached the word of God and found it difficult. And so we quit, right? You start with your year through the Bible plan and you hit somewhere around numbers And you go, this is the worst, right? And so you quit. And I would urge you, keep reading. Turn over to the New Testament if you must and come back to Numbers. But do not quit on the task of knowing God through his word because the source of theology that God has given us is scripture. And we want to be men and women whose views of God are shaped first and foremost by God's word. About seven or eight years ago, when I was ministering in the college ministry, a a young student came and he had some disagreements with me regarding the subject of faith and works and how those two work together in the Christian life. And he said, I want to talk to you about this disagreement. And I said, that's great, but I'm going to tell you right now, here's the ground rules. If we sit down and we talk about faith and works, we're going to talk about it from the scripture, not from what your pastor told you, not from what I told you, not from what a podcast told you. We're going to talk about it from the scripture, right? And we sat down and we began to hash out the scripture. And and the hard part for this young man was he hadn't read it. And so he began immediately to tell me what his pastor or the podcast had said. And I said, no, we're going to talk about what the scripture says, Because the process 
of knowing God and about God begins when we engage with His Word first and foremost. That's the primary source. Most of you are familiar with Martin Luther, who launched the Protestant Reformation by pinning 95 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg in Germany in 1517. Right? And, and his words about God's Word being primary in how we approach God and his philosophies about the relationship between faith and works brought him into conflict with the Roman Catholic Church of his day and with the empire under which he was living. And so he was summoned to a council called the Diet of Worms, right? Not the Diet of Worms, the Diet of Worms, where he stood before a representative of the emperor and they said, Martin, you have to recant these views. And he said to them, unless I am convinced by plain reason and the word of God, I cannot and will not recant. And it's said that Martin Luther then said, These words, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is held captive to the word of God, because my theology, see, derives from the scripture. And legend says that he then said, here I stand, that is on the word of God. God, so help me, I can do no other. Right, and out of the Reformation emerges this great slogan, sola scriptura. That is, we derive our understanding of God from his word. So Martin Luther will say it this way, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. If you want to hear God's words, read the words he has given. All right, so the subject of theology is God and the source of theology is his word. But we also recognize that the students of theology are human. The students of theology are human. What that means is that you and I cannot claim that we will perfectly understand God. Even if we spend a lifetime reading the Scripture, even if we spend a lifetime engaged in the church and the body of Christ, even if we read a thousand commentaries, we will not fully or even fully accurately understand God. First, because we are finite, right? And the Scripture affirms this. Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. God is greater than we are. Right? So our, our understanding of God will always in some ways be flawed because we cannot fully understand Him. So we ask questions often that we may never understand the answers to, at least on this side of eternity. How can God be sovereign and yet also give human beings free will? And we can spin on that topic around and around and around and around. And we may have ideas about that topic that derive from Scripture. But ultimately, we are trying to understand an infinite God with finite minds. And there's only so far we can take that type of discussion. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Again, We can spin around and around and around, and the Scripture gives us some answers. But know that men and women of faith have wrestled with this and written about this and preached about this for thousands of years. And they keep going because God is infinite. That should not cause us to despair, but it should cause us to recognize the beauty and the perfection 
and the infinite nature of God and say, I want to know him all the more. One of the challenges that we have when we approach theology is that you and I are not even aware of our own biases, our own preconceptions, our own culture, and how all of those things play into the way we read the scripture, the way we understand other people, the way we speak, the way we think. Uh, One of the uh, most vivid memories I have of uh, becoming aware of how my culture had shaped me was one summer I went to serve uh, on staff at a camp in upstate New York where I was serving on a staff with about two or 300 other Christian high school and college students, most of whom came from the Northeast. And I was tasked with leading the music for the staff. And so on the very first week, I got up and I began a song. And as the song began, I called everybody to worship. And here's what I said, y'all stand up and let's worship. And I heard chuckles, just like I'm hearing right now. And I, I literally thought, why are they laughing at me? I had no idea why they were laughing. And then I heard somebody from the back corner go, y'all come on and sing now, you hear? Right? And I thought, oh, they've literally never heard a person in a real sentence use the word y'all, right? And I thought, that's a tragedy because it is a perfect second person plural pronoun. Right? It's so much better than the ones they use, like use guys or you guys. Right? It's, it's just one word, y'all. Right? I, I could see certain translations of the scripture really working well with the word y'all. Right? Like Moses saying, y'all quit complaining about the manna. Right? It was so ingrained in my speech that I didn't even see it. Right? And what happens to us is that the world we grow up in into, the families that shape us, the people we talk to, the books we read, those all bring us a particular perspective on God and how to read God's word and how to understand it. And often it is very difficult, if not impossible, for us to get beyond those preconceptions because we are finite. The only perspective ultimately that I understand is my own, right? Because I cannot get into your mind And I certainly can't get into God's mind. And so we approach theology with humility to say, I need the word of God, but I also need the body of Christ. I need other wise men and women. I also need the words of those throughout the history of the church who have wrestled with topics like the deity of Christ and the Trinity so that I can understand what God's word is saying. So we approach it with humility, because we're finite, but also because we're sinful. And when we read the Word of God in our sin nature, we resist the truth of God's Word. And so our understanding of God's Word is often skewed because we have sin in our own heart, pride and greed and lust and anger and all sorts of sin that we do not even recognize and we certainly don't want to let go of. And so it shapes even the way that we think. Anybody who believes that the mind has not been corrupted by the fall is wrong. The mind, the heart, the body, all parts of me have been corrupted by sin. Romans 1 Paul will say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress the truth because we are sinful. Everybody who has kids has had an experience 
of finding that your child perhaps ate something forbidden, got into the candy jar and ate chocolate or cookies that he should not have eaten. And you discover the child and you confront the child and you say, did you eat a cookie? And the child can be holding the cookie and say, no, I did not. And you say, but you're holding the cookie. I am not holding a cookie. There is cookie on your face. It's in your teeth. I smelled the cookie from the kitchen. You're still chewing the cookie. I did not eat it. I did not. Right? Because we suppress the truth. As we grow, we become more sophisticated in our ability to suppress the truth and get away with it. And often what happens is we even are unaware of our own sin. Right? Much like that toddler. He wants so badly at that moment to believe that he didn't break the rules, that he convinces himself that he did not. And so when we read the Scripture, we justify, we rationalize, we evade. And so we always approach the Scripture with humility, and we always approach the Scripture along with others in the body of Christ who can say to us, you may be interpreting that incorrectly because, frankly, you have a sin issue in your life that keeps you from understanding it rightly. So we approach the Scripture with humility. We're finite. We're sinful. But the good news is we also can approach it with hope. And here's why. Because God wants us to know Him. We can approach theology with hope because God is not trying to hide himself from us. He is trying to reveal himself to us. When he gave the law to the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, God said to them, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. The word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. God says, look, I've made it plain. I've made it accessible. He hasn't deliberately made his will difficult or hard to find. He is through his word and through creation and through his people and through history speaking to his people so we can know him. So the subjects of theology are human. And so we approach theology with a great deal of humility, but we also approach it with a great deal of hope that God wants us to understand him accurately so we can worship him correctly, right? And ultimately, that leads us to the goal of theology. The goal of theology is worship. The goal of knowing about God is that we know God and we worship God and we proclaim God. The goal of theology is is worship. Some of the most theological passages of Scripture are also some of the most worshipful. If you have a Bible, turn for a moment to Psalm 103. I want you to see Psalm 103. The psalm begins with a statement of worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Now watch, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals 
all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. This is soteriology that God saves his people. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. This is church history. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's the character of God, theology proper. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. See, that's anthropology and what's called homardiology, our understanding of sin. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Again, anthropology, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. All, that's theology proper. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Now angelology, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That is not some dusty academic treatise conceived in a library that will never see the light of day. That is profound truth about the character of God, the character of mankind, the need for salvation. And it all results in David throwing up his hands and he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. The more I know about God, the more I love God. When I was in seminary, I had a class with a professor who would begin each lecture with a prayer. And his prayers were always these profound theological statements. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks into this course, I noticed that there was a young man on the front row who was always typing on his laptop, all the way through. While the professor was speaking and lecturing, certainly many people were typing, but even while the professor was praying, and it irritated me, because I wanted to hear the professor's prayers. And so one day a friend of mine and I went to this young man and we said, why don't you stop talk typing while he's praying? And the guy said, I'm typing his prayers because I want to learn to pray like him. And I I went online to his online course. This professor, his name is John Hanna, and, and I typed out one of his prayers and I'll just read a portion of it for you this morning. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you today as our great and benevolent God, the one who sits above the circle of the earth in resplendent glory and power. Your angels bow before you. The saints that have gone before us adore you, crying out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Straight out of the book of Revelation. 
We thank you so much, our Father, that you have allowed us to have your Son, that you allowed him to come into our blighted world to live for us, and most poignantly to offer himself up in our place for us, bearing our guilt, bearing our penalty, enduring its just recompense, that you might freely and justly forgive us of all our debt. We thank you for the wonder of salvation for the quietness and peace and tranquility it has brought to our souls and the hope that we have that though this place is but a shadowed world, there is something greater beyond it to which it points, however feebly. Our Father, we pray that as we begin our time together, that your mercy would be upon us. For these dear men and women who have come here to study, we pray your grace for their lives, not only for their minds, but for their hearts that he who is merely educated intellectually is not really qualified at all for the work of God. And if you do not do that quiet work you have promised to do for your children and have done time and time again, we will only be expending energy. We love you, our Father. You are the great God of heaven. We bow in obedience to you and look forward to the day when the kingdoms of this world will be given up to you and you will reign forever and ever. Now help us as we think together. We ask it as a favor for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's a prayer that is rooted in a deep understanding of God's word of the person of Jesus Christ, of the task of knowing him. See, theology drives how we worship God. And so in order to worship God correctly, we need to understand him and know him accurately. This past Easter, as I was preparing for my message from John chapter 11. Throughout the course of the week previous to that Sunday, I was reading John 11, one of the most profound descriptions of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so I was looking at things like the deity of Christ and his relationship to God the Father and the Trinity and the concept of bodily resurrection and eschatology and all of these things were playing into my sermon. And as I filled my mind with God's word and all of these truths about God, I got here on Sunday morning and I began to refresh all of these things, and I began to pray, and I began to weep with joy at the type of God who would give His Son, with joy at the reality of the resurrected Savior, right? Because when we fill our minds with who God is, we are moved to worship Him. That's what we want to do this summer to begin the process of thinking about God accurately so we can worship Him correctly. What we're going to do this morning as we close is we are going to worship Him in just a moment. We're going to finish with a song. But here's my prayer as we begin this study is that all of us will submit our hearts and our minds to the guiding of the Spirit. The process of knowing God, of course, begins at the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet entered into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, the beginning point, of course, of theology, of knowing God, is to believe that Jesus died for your sin and rose again, and God forgives all of our sin when we trust Him. And the Spirit of God enters our heart and our mind and empowers us to know Him. Right? And if you know Him, you then have the opportunity for a lifetime to know Him better. Right? So that's what we're going to do this summer. Let me show you what we're going to talk about this summer. Here's just a little schedule of where we're headed. 
You'll notice that for a few weeks I will be gone both for vacation as well as to study up for the fall semester uh, to preach. Right, but we're going to talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We're going to talk about us, mankind, and sin, and God's attributes, the Bible, sanctification, end times. I realize that's happening in the middle. It's just the way the schedule played out. Uh, angels, eternal security. I, I had to hand off end times to someone else. All right. Eternal security, the church, and salvation. We're going to talk about the truth of God's word from a theological perspective, so that as we come to know God more, we will learn to worship Him correctly. Allow me to pray for us, and then we'll end in worship. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the opportunity to know it. I pray that we would never believe that theology is simply academic. We would never believe that the study of Your Word is simply a way for us to argue about minute points that don't matter but that we would deeply fall in love with you and with your son, Jesus Christ, and desire to know about you because we want to know you. I pray that would be our desire this summer. Prepare us as we go from here for the task of knowing you, serving you, and proclaiming you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.